What's up everyone? This is Langston Clark. I want to take this time to thank you for listening into Entrepreneurial Appetites Black Book Discussions and invite you to listen to this bonus episode that features content from an upcoming show, the African Americans in Sport podcast, a collaborative effort between myself and my friends, Dr. Alvin Logan and Brandon Crooms. Here we feature a conversation with sports historian, Dr. David Wiggins, author of More Than a Game, a history of the African American experience in sport. This class at the three different universities, four different universities will likely have some student athletes in there. And I'm just, since you're talking about it, can you, what, what sort of advice or um, insights can you give to student athletes who maybe are considering going to graduate school or who maybe aren't even considered going to graduate school? How, did, how are you able to make that transition from being athlete to being an academic? Uh, good question. Um, and the student athletes that I used to advise when I was at George Mason, and prior to that time, by the way, I, I spent 10 years at Kansas State University in Manhattan, Kansas. So the student athletes that I advised at Kansas State as well as George Mason University, I'd always tell them that hold on to your dreams, continue to hone your, your talents athletically. Try to go as far as you can possibly go as an athlete, but also remember that it's very, very important. This is the way I always phrased it. It's very, very important to establish, if you can, if you possibly can, a non-sport related identity. Mm. That it's important not just to think of, of yourself as an athlete, but you should think of yourself as more than just an athlete. Um, because ultimately, for all of us, our athletic careers end. And what does one have left? You know, it, you've got the rest of your life for most of us. It is true that, you know, very, very, very few folks ever play intercollegiate athletics. Yeah. Very, 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 very few ever play professional sport. And those that do prof- play professional sport are looking at very, very brief, brief careers. So you've got to prepare yourself for life after football or life after basketball or life after baseball. So it's important to try to, uh, to, you, to do your absolute best in the classroom, to do your absolute best academically as well as athletically. Yeah. Uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to ease the transition once your athletic career is complete. Yeah. You know, of course, I preach that, but I'm not <laughs> whether, whether, whether folks were always listening to me or not, I don't know. But uh, that's, that's the advice that I always give to my student athletes, both at Kansas State as well as uh, – as well as George Mason University. Yeah, I appreciate that. I, I hope that it helps with the fact that you mentioned you, you were a student athlete, you were an athlete at a higher level than I ever participated in sports. And I, I think hearing those stories from folks like you and some other people that I know who are academics and, and were student athletes, I, I think it resonates a little bit better with the students than, than me yeah. saying it, you know, so I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, hopefully, you know, hopefully you have uh, a bit of credibility that my, my student athletes listen to me. Cause I think it's, you know, I think it's, or again, I think it's, I think it's important to, 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 to let folks know that, you know, hold on to those dreams do do the best that you can athletically uh, and, and reach and, and go as far as you possibly can. But, but I think it's important to have a, uh, a fallback, if you will. Yeah. And, and to try to find meaning, meaning and, uh, 
a sense of identity and and, and non-sport related kinds of activities because uh, it's important for the rest of your life. So, um, thinking about thinking about your book, I, I hadn't had a chance to read the entire thing, uh, but I, I did take take a look at it and, and read some some aspects, some some excerpts from some of the chapters, and. I was delighted to see how, so I was a TA for Dr. Harrison when he taught African-Americans in sport and have taught it on my own. And so both my colleagues, Alvin and Brandon are doing the same thing in their respective institutions. And I noticed that the book, the way you outline the book is very similar to the way Dr. Harrison outlines his class um, and the way that we're outlining a class. And so was wondering if, because so we, we, we typically begin with enslavement and kind of bring us all the way into the current sort of uh, social social context for black student athletes or just black athletes in general, um, which is, I guess, in the book, what is considered the altered athletic landscape. And so I was wondering if you could just kind of talk about any recurring historical themes that you see from, from the periods of enslavement all the way through the modern day that, that kind of connect the historical with the contemporary? What, what are some recurring themes that you've seen in your research or maybe outlined in the book? Well, certainly one of the things that you see, you know, African-American athletes, they have been the participants. And throughout history, in most instances, in most cases, they, those who have been in charge of and in control of sport have been predominantly um, folks from the predominantly white community, you know, um, it's they they have been the one in 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 charge of of the athletic activities. However, what I what I wanted to make clear, one of the things I wanted to make clear, and more than a game, mm. one of the things I wanted to make clear to folks is what was taking place behind what I refer to. Maybe you you saw this these terms. What I wanted to make clear is what was taking place behind um, the walls of segregation. You know. Folks tend to know, at least I think they tend to know, mm-hmm. a little bit about um, Negro League Baseball, for example. Mm-hmm. In fact, that's the, one, that's the one thing that folks tend to know about. They, they know Negro League Baseball. They, people know about Josh Gibson and Satchel Paige and Oscar Charleston, Cole Papa Bell, and, and athletes of those stripes. But far fewer people know about the others sports organizations that were uh, that were created by the african-american community mm. and and by and i know your background lines and how many people really know much about the history of sport among historical black colleges and universities very, very few yeah very, very few very, very very few yeah um i mean how, how many know about the various rivalries that took place among HBCUs, the football, the Thanksgiving Day football rivalries that took place among HBCUs. Uh, how many people know that there was a there was an all black car racing association? Mm. How many know about the New York Renaissance Five, the great all black basketball team? Um, many people know a little bit about the Harlem Globetrotters, but. No, very few people know about the New York Renaissance Spa, or how many people realize there was an all-black uh, tennis association or all-black golf association. Um, you know, I could go down, <clears throat> I could go down the list, but 
that's one of the things I wanted to make clear in this book. I just didn't want to talk about, while it's important, I just didn't want to talk about the integration of Major League Baseball or the integration of, of the National Football League. But wanted to make people aware that there is there's there is an, uh, another pattern of sport taking place behind behind racial segregation that that very few folks really really know too much about. Yeah. Um. Uh, but but uh, to kind of get back specifically your question, there's mm-hmm. there's no doubt that throughout history that 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 African American athletes have been the performers, if you will, the participants but oftentimes found themselves in a situation where, where the leagues and organizations in which they participated in were run by, were run by um, largely white entrepreneurs and white owners and, what, and clubs that were coached by, by whites rather than African-Americans. Yeah. Um, the, in other words, the leadership – uh, element of sport was really largely in the, in the hands of, of, of whites rather than African Americans. Yeah. That's, that's certainly a, that's certainly a, um, one of the themes throughout, throughout, uh, throughout our history. Yeah. This, this kind of brings me to, um, a question that I had about, I think it's in chapter three where it talks about how, I think it was some of the presidents of HBCUs. I think it was two presidents of HBCUs wanted to establish their own national league or organization for black college sports. And I was wondering if you could talk, because I, I know we have, they, they had their own um, conferences, right? The beginnings of the, of the black conferences, but at a national level saying it's its own NCAA. Um, could you give us some insight into that? And then maybe talk about like, what do you think would have happened if, if the black colleges had established their own national intercollegiate athletic organization. Yeah, they, they talked about it, but it never really came to fruition. You know, that I don't know. I think, I think part of the problem was, was uh, just having the financial wherewithal to pull, to pull it off. Mm. I, just don't th- I just don't think they could pull it off financially, but the important thing is, is they wanted to, uh, they wanted to have their own sense of empowerment they they were yearning for uh quite frankly they were yearning for a sense of agency yeah and and control that they just simply didn't think they had otherwise uh but there's certainly there were yeah there was there was continual discussions about creating their own their own national organization but ultimately ultimately they just they just simply couldn't pull it off and again i think it had a great deal to do with uh the lack of finances to, 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 to pull it off. So they always, historical black college and university always found themselves really um, being controlled by, by the, uh, by the NCAA. Yeah. And um, uh, for, for, well, for better or worse. Having said that, I mean, they did have, they did have, the important thing to note about HBCUs, of course, they did have their own leagues, their own organizations. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the oldest one would be the, um, well, initially referred to as the Colored Intercollegiate Athletic Association that was established in 1912, would eventually become the, uh, the Central Intercollegiate Athletic Association. That is still in existence to this very day. Yeah. The CIAA is still in existence. And um, <laughs> I'm not so sure there's anything more memorable 
basically it's based on a conversation that I've had with people more memorable than the CIA year-end basketball tournament that is yeah. held on an annual basis. So they they did have, and there are you know there are, uh, HBCUs of course had their own organizations in the Deep South too, not just. The Central Intercollegiate Athletic Association was initially made up of schools like Howard yeah. University and, and Hampton uh, and Virginia State and institutions like that. But, they, but uh, HBCUs in the Deep South also had their own, uh, their own athletic organizations. So while they did not have what, we, their, what was comparable to the NCAA, mm. they, they did have smaller organizational structures um, which help guide their uh, their their athletic programs. Yeah, I want to just take us back to uh, the period of enslavement, and I know that you you mentioned in the book that some enslaved black folk uh, who were athletic had had relative freedom and were in some cases able to 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 earn to to earn their freedom, and I say that in quotation marks. Can you talk a little bit about about that? Because when when I read that, like I was thinking about, in some ways, the freedoms that like premier athletes in in the modern era have, right? They can they they have latitude that um, a lot of the average black black folk don't feel like they have to do that 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 they can have. Like they have a type of agency that the average black person doesn't have. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, we there was there was a selected number of of uh, slaves, uh, enormously talented and gifted slaves who were able. Yeah, you're right. Were able to realize a sense of agency, a sense of freedom uh, that was unable that most slaves were unab- unable to realize. Quite frankly, mm-hmm. you know, one of those one of those athletes was a was a boxer by the name. I talk a little bit about, just as an example, I talk a little bit about uh, a slave by the name of Tom Molyneux, mm. who was an extraordinarily gifted pugilist, boxer, who fought matches on behalf of his owner. And legend has it, and I say legend has it because mm-hmm. I, I don't have any hard face past data on this, but legend has it that he won so much money for his owner that he was granted his freedom. And actually, eventually, Tom Molyneux eventually found his way to um, to England, mm. where he fought um, the great white boxer Tom Cribb twice for the heavyweight championship of the world. And so Molyneux was one of those one of those ex slaves that yeah he found a sense of uh, an important sense of mobility, a sense of freedom that uh, was not able to realize for the vast majority of of folks living in um, under the under the under the institution, um, there were also um, a number of very talented slave jockeys mm. who um, were able to travel. We think were able to travel around the country and 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 ride horses for their their owners, and uh, actually evidently made money. Um, and uh, had a sense of mobility and a sense of freedom, unable to be realized by the vast majority of of, um, of slaves at that particular period of time. The important thing to note, I think, however, is that mm-hmm. they were still slaves. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they were still 
they were still owned, if you will. Um, Ultimately, they were still under the control of somebody else, and at least the vast majority of them. And so, um, you know, there is still that that system in place, um, unfortunately. But but you're right. They were they were um, they they were um, slave with some slaves with privileges, if you will. Yeah. Now they were not ordinary field hands, or they were not slaves living in the big house, um, waiting on uh, the white master and his family. So, so they were they were privileged in some ways, um, and it's it's kind of in a, in a, but 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 very few. I'm not talking about. I don't think we're talking about a large number of folks, but there were a privileged few like that. Yeah. So we have we have um, those who were enslaved who were athletes um, within the institution of slavery, and then um, we get to I think I think in chapter four it talks about um, some African Americans who were in institutions of higher education, and it talks about how you know. These these brothers and sisters made um, made their alma maters proud, and um, Jesse Owens I think is mentioned in that chapter, um, having gone to Ohio State. Like Jesse, I went because I like I went to Ohio State for my master's degree, so they have a whole building named after Jesse Owens. But I always remember those stories about how when Jesse Owens' career was over, he had to race horses. Like it it was like he was like a showman. He wasn't really revered in the same way he should have been as an American hero. But then we have these, these other um, former athletes who went on to get PhDs and law degrees and had some political positions and things like that. Could you talk about those African-Americans who were able, even like back in the earlier 1900s to, to leverage uh, sports or their education to, be aspirational in other aspects of life. Yeah, I think well, there were there were a number of predominantly white institutions that yes, that did recruit African American athletes to their institutions. You know, predominantly white institutions. When I say predominantly white institutions, I'm I'm thinking of you know maybe the I'm thinking of those institutions, for example, in the Big Ten, mm-hmm. Ohio State, University of Michigan, University of Iowa. Yeah, they were interested, always interested in institutional prestige. And one of the ways in which one realized a degree of institutional prestige is through athletics. Mm. And, so, and so they ended up, in the early part of the 20th century, they ended up recruiting the elite of the elite African-American athletes. And many of those athletes were indeed outstanding students as well as outstanding athletes. And many of them did go on to extraordinary careers after their athletic careers were over, wherever, wherever they competed. You know, one of the famous athletes of that stripe would be uh, Paul Robeson, for example. Mm. Yeah. Paul Robeson was, was an extraordinarily gifted all-around athlete at Rutgers, but also an outstanding student, Phi Beta Kappa, who was one of those kinds of people. But, but there are a number of athletes of, 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 that, of that type. So, so yeah, many of these predominantly white institutions interested in international prestige recruited these kinds of folks. Now, now not all of them, however, it's important to note not all of them were were gifted both athletically as well as academically. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned Jesse Owens. Jesse Owens was not 
was not somebody was not a particularly good student. Mm-hmm. It's not that he was not a good student because he's innately not able to do the work. I just don't think Jesse really cared much about what was going on in the classroom. He just didn't spend as much time mm-hmm. academically as well as, as he did athletically. And he never graduated from Ohio State, interestingly enough. I didn't know that. No, he never graduated. Mm. Um, he just didn't spend much time. And there are athletes like that, of course, who, like Jesse, who just didn't devote much effort and, and hone their talents academically like they did athletically. But you're right. There are a number of, of, of famous and well-known people that, that um, uh, African-American athletes were also outstanding students who went on to, to post great post-athletic careers. You know, um, I'm trying to think of a good example to make this point. You know, in the 1936 Olympic Games in Berlin, mm-hmm. one, of the most, one of the most famous Olympic Games in our history, uh, we dominated, I say we, the United States dominated track and field, the track and field events Yeah. Uh, in 1936 in Berlin. And, of course, that's the tra- track and field is always one of the marquee events in Olympic in the Olympic Games. Yeah. We, we dominated track and field in 1936. We, we did it largely through the efforts of, um, of African-American athletes. You know, Jesse Owens garnered four gold medals yeah. in Berlin in 1936. John Woodruff, the great African-American middle distance runner, won the gold medal in the 800 meters. Mm. Um. Cornelius Johnson, the great African-American high jumper, won the gold medal. He was from Compton Junior College in Los Angeles. He, he got, got the gold medal. Mac Robinson's, Mac Robinson, who was Jackie Robinson's older brother and who had competed at the University of Oregon, garnered gold medal in the 400-meter relay. We had, we had great – it was dominated by – this is interesting. It was dominated – by African-American athletes who had mm. competed, who all of them had competed at predominantly white institutions. Wow. Because these are, these are institutions that recruited the, the very, very best African-American athletes. So, but, but many of them went on to great, uh, great careers following their, uh, yeah. following their athletic performances. Um, but yeah, yeah. So you mentioned, um, you mentioned you mentioned um, Jackie Robinson's older brother um, yeah. running in the, in the nineteen thirty six Olympics, and got has me thinking about like when we when most people think about the integration of sports, obviously they go to Jackie Robinson and, and the, the Brooklyn Dodgers um, and whatnot. And, and in light of that, I'm wondering if you could uh, explain this concept of reintegration. What is what is reintegration? Well, what, ha- what happened in the latter stages of the 19th century, following slavery, um, during the during um, I'd say the first 20 to 25 years following emancipation, mm-hmm. one of the interesting things about um, sport, American sport, is for a brief time, African American athletes were allowed to participate at the highest levels of predominantly white organized sport. I'd say for the first 15 to 20 years following emancipation. Mm. 
we had a number of great African-American jockeys uh, who were competing in horse racing, uh, which at that time was America's number one spectator sport. For example, the great Isaac Murphy, mm-hmm. who became the first jockey ever to win back-to-back Kentucky Derbys, the first jockey ever to win three Kentucky Derbys, the first jockey ever selected to the horse racing uh, Hall of Fame in Saratoga Springs, New York. Yeah, We had the great... Um, Moses Fleetwood Walker played um, with the Toledo Mud Hens of the American Association, which in the 1880s had major league status. Uh, Marshall Major Taylor, uh, the great African-American bicyclist from Indianapolis, Indiana, was competing both nationally as well as internationally. Uh, you, had, you had these select number of great African-American athletes, again, who, who, are, who are competing at the highest levels of predominantly white organized sport. Mm. But what happens at the turn of the century, particularly the last decade of the 19th and around the turn of the century, mm-hmm. is most, most African-American athletes would be eliminated from predominantly white organized sport. Wow. Uh, again, and that's important to note. And um, what, what, what happened is African American, the large, largest majority of African American athletes, like African Americans in general, were, um, were finding themselves uh, um, being segregated yeah. and losing their place um, in, in most predominantly white organized sport. Jim Crow laws, the black codes, um, where uh, segregation based on race was being legalized, um, resulted in the largest majority of African-American athletes being eliminated from um, the highest levels of predominantly white organized sport, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. Yeah. Um, But interestingly enough, I would say with three exceptions – Okay. African-American athletes would continue to be allowed to participate in the sport of boxing. A select number of African-American athletes, as we just mentioned, would be able to continue to participate in predominantly white uh, college sport. Mm-hmm. And African-American athletes would, would also continue to be able to participate. A select number would be able to con- uh, could continue to be able to participate in a, in the Olympic Games. Mm. Um, those were those were 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 three exep- exceptions. So when I say reintegration, um, so at the turn of the century, most African American athletes were limited predominantly white organized sport, and so they had to. They were forced, most of them were forced to organize their own teams, mm-hmm. their own leagues, and their own organizations with, little, with no white interference. We hope you enjoyed this bonus content. Be on the lookout for the full discussion with David Wiggins on the African American Sport Podcast, premiering August of 2021.